Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. If you know Chris Matthews, you know the anchor of MSNBC's Hardball reveres the Kennedys. His latest book is Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit, and in it, he explores the man who was considered a runt by the Kennedy patriarch, but who Chris argues was the force behind his brother, President John F. Kennedy. So who was Bobby Kennedy? Find out right now. Chris Matthews, thank you very much for being on the podcast. This is a, this is really special for me. Jonathan, you're a gentleman, and uh, I assume a scholar. Just kidding. You know, it's great to have you on the show because you always come to play, and you're always um, up. Is that a good word? I, I, I leave it to I you. I up. I think it's showtime for you, and I think it is for all of us when you show up. Well, thank, thank you very much, Chris. But it's showtime for you right now because we're here um, to talk about your eighth book, Bobby... A raging spirit. Um, where on earth do you find the time to write books and not just, you know, throwaway books? I risk divorce. Because my wife said, you know, when I started this, she said, you promised no more because it's a direct take from life. I mean, you, you work like you do 50, 60 hours a week. It comes down to the stuff you have to do, prepare every day, and everything's preparation. It's reading the papers thoroughly. It's, it's getting your head around it. It's talking to people about ideas. It's some reporting. It's all time-consuming, and it's great. But it does take, as I said, 50 to 60 hours at least. And then you got to find the rest of the time. So the rest of the time, you're either eating, sleeping, having family time as mandatories. You mm -hmm. have to sleep at least five hours a day. Oh, my God. And you have to eat dead. at least an hour a day. And you have to spend at least some time with your partner or your spouse. You have to. <laughs> and if you have kids, you have to show that. And then you got to go to church. You have to go to the movies once every couple of weeks, probably. You have to watch some of your favorite shows. So there's not much left time. So what I ended up stealing the time from is late at night, I can't stay up till I fall asleep. I literally stay up till I fall asleep. Or just put myself on a budget to say, I'm up at 6 tomorrow morning. I'll get the coffee at 6.30. Richard Reeves used to have a rule as the writer. As a writer, he would say, "I don't get coffee after until I've done a certain quota of work in the morning." Hmm. And he like really put himself on that on that, uh, uh, you know, what do you call it? That uh, regimen. Yeah, well, it's a nice Routine. word for it. And then weekends, and that's where you really take time for your family because my because you know Kathleen and she says that room you go into. She calls my office <laughs> that room. It's that a room. nice room, but it's, it's a great, it's but it, with the door gets closed. Yeah, it. and the door closes, and I have go I go in there. And then you begin what they call in racing and, and track, the kick, the last six months, where you just have to get each many, certain many chapters done. So I don't know. And then picking the pictures, which I love to do. And also picking, um, picking the pictures and, and getting the paragraphs or the uh, chapters right. And um, I mean, I'm really a big believer now in short chapters, 10 pages or so. I want to give people something to read at, at night before they fall asleep. And everybody's in a habit in D.C. You, you read to fall asleep, basically. And, um, <laughs> and I think that uh, it makes people feel like they're making progress. They're sticking, and they finish the book. Right. They don't end up around 129 like you do with some books. I might, first of all, I write really well. Yes, that and, is true. There I say that, and I write. And I, and I know like you, John, or anybody else who likes bookstores, you go in the bookstore and you, look, you browse through a book, you go, I'll buy this. You don't do it by the cover. You look at the book, you start to read it. Is this well-written? Is this going to be a joy to read, or is this going to be a trudge? And I think it's great. To, I, it's, everybody says it sounds like me, but it's obviously more polished than well, me. Well, well, talking about, you know, judging a, literally judging a book by its cover, the cover photo leads perfectly into 
um, the question I want to start with to talk about about your book, Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit. And it's Bobby Kennedy reaching out into a crowd of African-Americans. One has a has a photograph of him and he's you know, joyful, smile on his face, like leaning into the crowd from from above. I'm, I'm assuming he's in a car or something. Yeah. And there's just it's probably being held by Rayford Johnson or one of his mm-hmm. athletic big athletic friends held so he won't fall. Right, over. So he won't fall over. He, he's basically it, giving himself. Right. That chapter is called Sacrifice. I believe, first of all, when he ran for president in 68, he basically gave up the sure shot in 72. Mm-hmm. He was going to be president. And he did it because he really wanted to end the war. But look how he's, he's sort of giving himself. The thing about I like about Bobby is I don't think you can – I was writing this this morning. You can't show empathy unless you expose yourself. Mm-hmm. You have to make, True. make yourself vulnerable. So you go to a sick bed. And, you know, it's uncomfortable being – especially when somebody's clearly dying. Right. You have to expose yourself. You don't go in there with your armor on. You go in and go, let it hurt. Let me be embarrassed. And Bobby would, when Dr. King was killed, he went into that tough neighborhood in Indianapolis. He, the cops didn't go with him. Right. So, and not only that, but he exposed himself. He went in and said, okay, don't like me, mistrust me, do whatever you want to do to me. But I'm here to show that I care. And I'm going to do it the way I could. And he was awkward and he repeated himself a lot. But there was no doubt when that was over that night, I get chills when I think about this, that he actually was giving himself mm-hmm. to that audience of people that... He could have said, I can't do it tonight. King's just been killed. I can't walk in front of a crowd on a night like this. And there's a great thing I got because working for NBC, I got the tape. And he says to the guy next to him on the flatbed, do they know yet? And the guy says, no. And at that moment, he realized he had to tell them that King had been shot and killed by some white guy. And that's one a of the sniper, mo- just like his brother was killed by right. a sniper. And that's what, uh, when, you, when you hear that, that moment when he tells them, and the shrieks that go through the crowd yeah. and and people just distraught. And then he delivers just this incredible speech yeah. off the cuff. Like, there are no, no prepared remarks. There's no teleprompter. He's Is he standing on the street? Is he in a car? He's up on a, I, I, I'm almost positive he was on a flatbed flat, truck. On a flat bed it was truck a set-up speech. It was going to be a major political address in that primary. He was going for votes. And uh, I think... I think it's in those days, people got news by word of mouth or they got it at 630 at night. Mm-hmm. There was no other way to get it, really. People weren't sitting around with even with uh, radios. They, didn't have, they weren't walking around carrying radios with them or transistor right. radios. People didn't have that. They relied on news from people. What you hear, you know, mm-hmm. I heard about Jack Kenny being shot by somebody told me at the post office at college. Did you hear? And, uh, that, and then you race over to the class then you race over to find Cronkite on television. Right. But uh I th- he had to tell them, and I think um, the thing about it, which really got to me, is how religious he was. And he said at the end, um, he said, we have to make an effort. I, that gets to me, because in racial relations in this country, which are still, you know, in terms of geography and the, and the inner city and the way people live in separate lives, making an effort is good enough for me. Make an effort, because he, he didn't say, kumbaya, we're all going to be hanging around together. He was just like saying... Let's make an effort. Mm-hmm. And he kept saying that phrase, make an effort. And I go, that's what will always work with me. Make an effort. You're not St. Francis. You're, if you want to just be a, help this racial thing heal, it's going to take a while. It took 400 years to get as bad as it got in this country. And, and yet today we have people that don't make an effort. In fact, they make an effort, I think, to worsen it. And, uh, and empathy can only come when you're for unity. I don't think you can be empathetic to one crowd and not another. I don't think true empathy can be anything but human. Either you're empathetic or you're not. Either you connect with people. He, 
It took him a long time, John, if mm-hmm. you read the book through mm-hmm. it, to understand the, the, the African-American condition in this country and, to, and learn it from people like James Baldwin and young people. And, and it hurt, and he had to be, <clears throat> and the old phrase was mouth He had to be hit and hit again, just keep pounding him. And, uh, and he was willing to expose himself to that. Well, I, I, let me tell you a, a story from my childhood um, because it speaks to Bobby Kennedy and it speaks to the symbolism of Bobby Kennedy and what he meant to African Americans. So when I was a kid, I spent every summer until I was 12 at my grandparents See, in, this in North you know, Carolina. I don't know. And my grandmother was a Jehovah's Witness. And so there we are in rural North Carolina in a car driving on, on dirt, dirt roads. Where was she on Catholic? That I don't know. That I don't know. <laughs> yeah. But we would go, we would go into, um, into these homes, these ramshackle homes of um, uh, African-Americans um, who always had what I ended up calling the black trinity on their walls, Kennedy, King, and Christ. Mm. And the Kennedy was John F. Kennedy. And even at that age, I understood why John F. Kennedy was on the wall. He was president of the United yeah. States. He was he was taken from us too soon. But in a lot of other homes, there was always a fourth picture. There was always Bobby Kennedy. Yeah. And I never understood why, why is the president's brother on this wall? And it wasn't until I was an adult and I read Taylor Branch's Parting the Waters that I, that I understood that it was Bobby Kennedy who was the one who came to the aid and comfort and rescue of African-Americans when they were surrounded by white mobs yeah. in churches in Montgomery, when they couldn't um, yeah. integrate schools in Mississippi, um, when horrible things went down. You got it who all. Did, who did, who did um, yeah. Martin Luther King call? It, it, he called President Kennedy, but when he needed immediate action and understanding, he called Bobby Kennedy. And... I'm, I'm hard-pressed to think of a person in American society today who is even remotely close to Bobby Kennedy in that sense of being a big symbol of, and it all gets to what you were talking about before, understanding, empathy, putting yourself out there, allowing yourself to be beaten up by, by people who are demanding more of you than you think you can give. Yeah. And then turning around and being able to being able to deliver. Well, you got it right. I, I benefited by studying a lot of the writings of people like uh, Harry Belafonte, who knew it all, and he would do things you don't even know about. Like he was the one that raised all the money from the unions to get those kids out of jail in Birmingham after they were all fire hosed and the dogs biting them, Bull Connor and all mm-hmm. that horrible stuff. And he had to get the money because it was very tricky about how they would King and the other people would accept whose help they would accept. I mean, King wanted to stay in for a while, to make the point. And, and, and it was Bobby who went to Jack. I, I have it on a tape from Robert Drew's documentary, which people should watch, is where he tells Jack, you have to go on television tonight, and you've got to come out for this civil rights bill, and you've got to do it now. And this is a couple weeks right after when he, the, when he had taken that beating, that, that uh, beating, or oral beating, from uh, J- James Baldwin's crowd up in New York, the, the literary guys. And, uh, and, and he, I want you to talk about, about that meeting, yeah. but finish your thought. And I think he did a lot of things that people got the word about uh, because, uh, you know, he was the one that got the judge to release King in 1960. And he was hesitant. He said, what's this? But then he realized, he said, you know what? Why is that SOB judge putting a guy away for a traffic violation, hauling him off to someplace in the boonies? What is this about? What kind of misuse of the law is that? And then he got down involved with the old miss you mentioned. 
he didn't know that the white Southerners, that some of them hated the blacks so much that they weren't going to let him in that school under any circumstances. And he finally said to uh, one of his top guys that may have been Katzenbach, he said, if anybody touches Meredith, shoot him. I mean, he meant it. He said, I don't want that guy hurt because they were killing people. Journalists were getting killed down at Ole Miss. And he finally, he didn't want to bring in the federal troops. He knew how bad that looked at Little Rock under Eisenhower in 57, Little Rock High School. He hated to do that because it made the whole country look like hell to the communist world that's laughing at us. Right. And he hated that. that. And that was a big consideration. Right. It's a Cold War era. You don't want to look like you're terrible people. But he always tried to, he did it with George Wallace, Katzenbach. He he said, now get Wallace, George Wallace, the governor, out of the way. He knows he wants to put on a big show, but just push him aside. But, so he gets the tallest guy he can find, to go in there, the state uh, trooper, to stand there next to him. Uh, he did. He just did it, and he kept pushing and pushing. And uh, and then after his brother was killed, he pushed even harder. Um, you have a quote. You talked about Harry Belafonte, um, and it was— I'm trying to remember which incident it was where Harry Belafonte, watching what Bobby Kennedy did, he says, at last, Bobby's moral center seemed to stir. It's when, uh, remember the Freedom Riders, it was okay in the beginning. It was a little rough, and then they got really bad in Aniston, really rough in Alabama. And these people were coming out with, it wasn't gunplay, it was more like came out with big clubs and pipes, and that's the way people fought in those days. Even the gangs fought that way, you know. And like West Side Story, they didn't right. they weren't out shooting each other. They were beating each other up with, with physical objects. So Sigenthor says to some, he is his administrative assistant to Bobby. Bobby sends him down there because he's a Southerner with a Southern accent. And From Tennessee. White guy. And he sends him down there to sort of keep an eye on what's going on. So he had somebody on the ground with the Freedom Riders. So <laughs> Sigenthor makes the mistake of saying to some Southern troublemaker, I'm from the federal government. <laughs> well, that was the end of that. He turned his head and the guy with a lead pipe smashed him on the head, and he's lying on the street for a half hour, half hour, basically out. And the, and the local police, of course, let him late because he's some white son of a, as far as they're concerned, he's the bad guy. Right, know, he's the he's federal the, government. He's the troublemaker, Try- and he's the northern and whatever else, and he's the fed. And after, when that happened, John Lewis, who was a young man then, a young man, said that's when uh, things started. That's when Bobby had some skin in the game. Somebody very, his guy, his top staff guy, was just beaten to hell, almost killed, and, you know, that's when Belafonte said that's when his, when his soul, his, uh, his uh, consciousness moved, the wonderful way he put it. Mm-hmm. And then this, this oral beating, as you called it, um, yeah, that, that, was that Bobby Kennedy well, he um, agreed. He endured. Thought, he thought he had earned his stripes so, with the black community. He so thought up, he was very cool. Scene. Okay, here's Bobby Kennedy having gotten the kids out of jail in Birmingham, feeling a little bit uh, hubristic, perhaps, about himself. Now I'm the good friend of the black community, and they're going to treat me like great. Like, you're, the, you're our Robin Hood. You've come here to help us, and you're king of Richard the Lionhearted, basically. <laughs> you're the good, powerful man who's going to help us. Instead, he goes into his, he, it's his father's apartment I get, on Center Park South. I'm sure it's a nice place. About a dozen people came in there. I don't know all the names, but it was like Lena Horne. It was all famous people who'd been very successful as crossover figures with the, with the majority community. Everybody knew who they were. The woman who wrote Raisin in the Sun. Mm-hmm. And, of course, James Baldwin, who was brilliant. And Baldwin was hosting it. Uh, he had brought them all together. It was his crowd. And instead of the older people or like middle-aged people, the, the successful people talking, this young kid, military age, said, I'm not going to fight in this war, this Vietnam war that's just under getting underway. And he goes, I'm not going to do it. And Bobby cannot believe a lack of patriotism. He doesn't understand how somebody could be so disillusioned and so disenfranchised to say, I'm not going to fight for this stupid country. I hate this. I'm mad at it. He couldn't believe that somebody would say, I'm not fighting for America. 
And that's when his Cold Warism and all clashed mm -hmm. with his concern about civil rights and all. And that's when um, he said, enough. He basically said, no mas. I can't take this anymore. After this pounding he was taking. But as I said, a few days, a week or so later, he was the one that learned from that. He walked out of the room. He thought about it like he always did. He learned and he goes, you know what? If I was, one of the, if I was him, I'd be him. And that takes... That's called education. It's called, and I it, think he and he he was willing. Very few, like we have politicians today. I mean, left, right, and center, who are so stuck in who they are. Mitch never changes. Chuck never changes. Nancy, it's all Groundhog Day with this president, especially. Every morning at six thirty, he's the same guy he was yesterday at six thirty. There's no growth. There's no. Oh yeah, I'm a little better at that than I was yesterday. I get foreign policy. I get how to deal with North Korea. I get how to deal with race. No, let's go back and jump up and down on the racial line again. Let's go. You go after the, you know, taking the guys. Let's take the statues issue. Let's exploit, exploit, exploit. It's always the same thing. You know, working the division. It's easy to work the division. Mm -hmm. Actually, on either side, you can work division. It's easy. And and people that come along and say, you know, I think we got some things in common. Let's work on them. Let's figure this thing out. You know. You're stuck with this history. Let's find a way to mark it without honoring it. Let's figure it out. You know, there are ways to do things, you know. But uh, Bobby, I think, when I first heard about him as a person was when I was working on the Capitol Hill. I'd just gotten back from the Peace Corps in Africa. I was working during, the only job I could get was working in the daytime for a senator. And the deal was I'd work as a Capitol Hill cop at night. And so from 3 o'clock to 11 after night, after working in the office most of the day, I'd put on my uniform, my 38 special, and I'd hang out with the cops. And a lot of them were West Virginia guys. Real double. They they were MPs in the military, tough conservatives, and I listened to them. And one of the old guys, Leroy Taylor, said to me, "You know why the little man loves his country? Because it's always got." I never hmm. forgot that the country boys. They don't have beautiful families and homes and money and educations. Money. They all they have is basically the flag that they fought for. A lot of them. And the other thing I learned was, guess who was the only liberal Democrat senator? who always made a point of saying hello to the cops when he walked by. How you doing? This guy. Bobby, Bobby Kennedy. The other guys were snooty. You know, the river cops, the Fulbrights. Oh, I've got more important things. I love everybody, but nobody in particular. One of those guys, you know. And I, that told me that Bobby was not a, a snot. It told me that he had it. He really did. He, in fact, Jack Newfield wrote this wonderful book about him years ago before he died. And he said, Bobby's people were the cops, the waitresses, and the firefighters, the regular people. He never discarded the white working class to appeal to minorities. He just said, I'm, I'm sticking with the people I grew up with, the people I care about, and I'm adding to them. I'm not going to dump one group for another. Where the you, Democrats have got to learn how to do that. Where do you, where do you think th that came from in Bobby Kennedy? I mean, he grew, he was born into a wealthy family. He, you know, he had every right, you know, know. judging, you know, by the Fulbrights and everyone else to look down on mm. all of those people. Do you think it was... Um, sort of the family's, um, what's the word I'm looking for? The birth order. Well, not birth order, but the family saying, like, we have to help the least of these, one. And two, how much of, of, of his, his empathy and that moral, that moral center that Harry Belafonte talked about, how much of that is rooted in his Catholicism? Well, I think you're on to something. I, you know, you never can read a person, ideally, you try... I think part of it was, at least he said, and I never bought this because I grew up Irish Catholic. I never felt that we had any problem with prejudice. If somebody didn't want us in their clubs, to hell with them. I mean, it's such a minimal, marginal prejudice against us that was all old and pretty much worn out by the time I grew up. But he liked to carry that around with him. He loved to talk to my father on a different way. Like he goes to see the Irish up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, right after his brother dies, is killed. 
And he talks about how the Irish were dumped on by the British, then dumped on when they got here. And he says, we got to be good for the African-American. That's just so rare because my, my mom was the other way around. She said, don't give me that civil rights stuff. We had it just as bad. You know, this is nonsensical. They didn't have it as bad. The other part of it, I think, was the real part was his father called him a runt. He ignored him. He overlooked him. He discarded him, really. And he paid all his attention to first Joe Jr., who was going to be president, and then mm-hmm. Jack was going to be president. Had no time for Bobby. And Bobby would beg him, Dad, can't you tell me, can't you talk to me about big stories, big important things like you do my brothers? He'd beg for that. He basically cast him off to his mom. He became mama's pet. And that's not the best deal for a kid, to be only mama's pet. And I think it was that. I think he knew what empathy was because he's, he was his, he wasn't his father's. He wasn't another black sheep or anything, but he wasn't, he never was favored. And he's much smaller than his brothers. I think mm. that meant a lot in that jock family of theirs. You know, they're, the brothers are all about six. He's 5'8". There's nothing strong. wrong with 5'8". There's eight. nothing wrong with 5'8", unless all your brothers are six feet. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And your old man is an SOB who just looks about everything, how tough you are. And either way, people said he only became sensitive later in life. I've got lots of evidence about this guy when he was a kid caring about poor people, uh, showing empathy, and the old man saying, where'd that come from? You know, dumping on him for that. Did it come from his mom then? Where did it come from? If he's, if he's being dumped on... They, uh, the friends that- of the family all noticed his generosity, his care for the kids who don't have it. He'd look out the window. You know, rich kids took the train in those days. He'd look out the window at the poor people who were always around the railroad tracks. There are always poor people along railroad tracks. And can't we help those people? And uh, Dave Hackett, his best friend, a townie, in prep school, I mean, he hung out with the townie. At college, he hung out with the jocks, all the GI Bill guys. He quit the speed club. He went and hung around the varsity club. Uh, the guys wearing white sweat socks all day. You know, the jocks. He did not feel comfortable among the aristocrats like Jack did. Jack's all Jack's friends were multi generational old money friends. He didn't have any new, even new money friends, let alone no money friends. And yet he and he, meaning Bobby Kennedy, and his brother, the president. Um, disabused me of this. They were close, or were they very not? Very close. They were very close. Unbelievably close. And it's because Bobby loved his brother. He gave up. He was working as a Justice Department prosecutor, going after crooks in the government up in Brooklyn. A big case, like we have all the time in this country, crooked politicians. And he was going to nail this guy. And Jack asked him if he'd come up and, and save his campaign. He got him elected to the Senate. And then he the letter, the stuff he wrote, Jacqueline wrote to him. I mean, he made the impossible possible. He made that campaign work. It's chilling to think about what a brother can do for a brother. He made him president. He really did. And if you re- go through the, 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 the rough work he did on his opponents, I mean, who do you think went in the back room with the governors and made them do what they wanted done? The governor of Ohio, the governor of Maryland. He was the guy who enforced. It's pretty scary because Jack would always say, Bobby, um, get him to come out publicly for me and keep me out of it. <laughs> and, and, and don't give me the details. Just get it done. And Bobby would say, okay, boss. And he would, you know, he would say, boss, he'd say, thanks a lot, Jack. I got to go do the dirty work again. And he did. And he would, so the runt. The runt um, ends up the, being the, the Luca Brazzi. It, it, he, beca- <laughs> he becomes the, the enforcer. The, 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 a, real power, a real power behind the throne, if you will. And what we still call backroom politics, mm-hmm. which is, Getting people to do what they don't want to do, and that's how he got his brother elected. I got a. There's a quote um, in the book from um, the father, Kennedy Senior's biographer, uh, David uh, Nassau, 
And he writes, the Kennedys would always be outsiders, unable to fully trust anyone but family members. Jack needed all the protection he could get. Only Bobby was going to put his welfare first. And this, he's talking about Bobby Kennedy as AG. And when I read that line, I instantly thought of President Trump and his his demands of loyalty from the FBI director, from Attorney yeah. General Jeff Sessions. This is a completely You're different so right time though. today than from back I then. I think back but then the idea of a separate AG was unknown. And AGs were the president's AG. And I think that is so ethnic, though. That's, that is so much the old father, still a bit un... Um, you know, he really wasn't really Americanized yet, the old man. He, was, <laughs> he, was, he wasn't that way. He was thinking, who's going to protect us in the new land? Like you think of somebody from Pakistan or somebody from India or somewhere. They're over here. They feel vulnerable. He felt vulnerable. It's hard to seem that way because we're all so much past it. But he wanted the Irish clan, like the godfather Italian clan, Sicilian clan. They didn't trust anybody but the clan. You know, and, mm-hmm. and it was us against the rest. And that's why they, part of the affection for McCarthy, despite the fact they decided Bobby did. He was no good on what he was doing. But this sense that we need to be protect ourselves from the outside world. And the Kennedys can't trust anybody but a Kennedy. And so then our, our modern um, perception of the separation of the president from the attorney general, is that, that's a post-Watergate thing. Yeah, I think Watergate but, but let's, let's, not, let's be careful about clouding this with Trump because Trump, I think he's more like an NBA player who likes his entourage around him. He just likes to have a family around. They're not doing anything good for him. What is Jared doing for for Trump. He's just hanging around. Ivanka, she's pretty. She's always at the room. He had Don Jr. around. I think it's his comfort blanket, you know, his blankie. He likes them on the plane with him. What are they doing on the plane right now in Asia? <laughs> I don't know what they're doing. Whereas Bobby got him elected to the Senate, got him elected to the president, fought the rackets. He set up the rackets committee for three years, fighting tough guys like Giancana. I mean, Bobby was one tough leader. And when he, look at this, the Bay of Pigs thing is going south. It's clear that whoever, whatever, buffoon led to put those people on the beach, a few hundred people, 1,800, whatever, 1,500, against an army of 40 or some thousand. How did, what were they thinking? Uh, he calls up Bobby and says, it's not going very well. Can you get, get back here? Because Bobby's off giving his speech. You're down he in need, Richmond. Yeah, right. he needed Bobby. He, whenever he got in trouble, it was Bobby. He basically put Bobby in charge of all of Bobby was there for the whole Cuban Missile Crisis, basically giving him his best counsel about dealing with the Turkish missiles, answering the, the first letter, not the second letter. A lot of it, not, inv- not invading, not attacking. It was Bobby's counsel, a lot of it moral, which is like, we don't do Pearl Harbors. We're not going to do a sneak attack. I mean, a lot of it was Bobby's big brother. He was sort of, Bobby was more the big brother. Let me bring you back to something you said um, earlier on. You, there was a bit of an aside about, you know, Democrats forgetting about the, about the working class. And I'm wondering what lessons from Bobby Kennedy, the Bobby Kennedy you you um, show in this book, could Democrats learn from? Well, it's, it's almost a, a graphic. Here he is campaigning in a changing town, Gary, Indiana, in Indiana, the primary. And of course, it's not like in the movie. It's not like Ron Howard singing Gary, Indiana. It's not a, a rural town on the train route. It's an ethnic town, a lot of Eastern Europeans with you know, unspellable names, all those Eastern people, Serbians, everything. And a Polish, a lot of Polish people, they're sort of the top of the list. And, uh, and, and African-Americans moving in. It's changing. And so there's all that stuff going mm-hmm. on. 
So, you know, he would campaign like he did often. He would ride around town in an open car with Richard Hatcher, the first black mayor on his side, and Tony Zale on the other side, the, the, the middleweight champ who had beaten Rocky Graziano a couple times. On the other, the man of steel, they called him. He was the local hero. <laughs> and he would visually try to show how he was going to be balanced. He was going to keep everybody together. I mean, maybe that's hokey. I don't know, but it worked. I mean, it was a statement. He was saying, look, I'm here for both communities. You got it? I know you're fighting with each other over turf, but, you know, I'm here for both of you. We're going to make an effort. That's what I'm going to do. Make an effort. Sim symbols matter. Um, we started the conversation talking about a photo, and that's the photo on the, on the front of the book. But then there's the photo on the back of the book, yeah. which is truly, it, it is a very simple photo. It's a powerful photo, but it says so much about the country and the man that these three people are saluting. Talk about them. Well, when I worked for the San Francisco paper, the Examiner years ago, I, I did a, a, a magazine cover on Bobby, and in the putting the artwork together, they came up with this, and that's how I discovered this picture. I didn't realize the resolution. If you just go to a bookstore, you will see it's almost 3D. It's late in the day. It's along the railroad tracks, apparently in New Jersey. The, the sun is just golden. And here's this poor family. I wouldn't say working class. I mean really dirt poor white family with the, the mother, apparently the wife is all dirt, dirty clothes, poor clothes. The husband has got a dirty face. He's saluting in a military crisp manner like he'd obviously been an enlisted guy in the military. And then there's his son next to him. It's kind of a sad case. He's all dirty. He doesn't have a shirt. His body, his upper body's all dirty. His face is dirty. His hands are dirty. These are working people, dirt poor people. They're obviously working on Saturday at something. Yet they came out to salute with patriotic affection, Bobby Kennedy. And that, I think that's gone, that sense of patriotic affection for a leader. Sure, they'll vote for Obama, they'll vote for the Clintons or whatever, but there's none of that um, affectionate patriotism. Like, he's our patriotic hero. And I also went back in the book to make sure this is all balanced. There's a, in, in the prologue, the pictures of the prologue. It's the same kind of family, but a whole line of these, these obviously, it must have been a Catholic family. All these kids, one, two, three, four, five, like our family, we were better off. Again, a very poor white family. And then below them, exuberant African-Americans with the, with the holding up the sign, God bless the Kennedys. And just as respectful. In fact, there's that wonderful moment when I th it was in Baltimore when this huge crowd, I think it was 20,000 African-Americans at the, at the stop there spontaneously sang the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Now, who's, I get chills again. Who did that? Who said, let's start singing something? It wasn't phony politics with, you know, balloon drops and, and you know, shooting out T-shirts and spending a lot of money. It was just genuine affection for a guy who they all trusted. And these are different groups. They're mm -hmm. not integrated. But both groups trusted him. And they knew they were losing something. And I'll remember that day because I remember sitting. I was at grad school at North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I remember the exact emotion I had, which is it wasn't that terrible beauty or the beauty of the Kennedy, Bobby, of the Jack Kennedy funeral with the horses and the horseless rider and the beauty of that cold day and Jackie looking gorgeous and the brothers and the sisters-in-law and the kids looking just unbelievable, a royal family. It wasn't that terrible beauty. It was this, just loss. There was nothing romantic about it. And I think that's the way people still feel when they think of Bobby Kennedy. We just lost a really good leader. Chris. By the way, I'm running him against Trump right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm running him emotionally because the spirit of Bobby 
is uh, is what we need to remember. It's no good to just not like Trump. You got to remember something grander, something more hopeful, a spirit that the country can actually try to make an effort instead of what we're doing now. Can we get that back? Well, somebody's going to come along and do it. It may be some of the people you and I know. It may be some of these young 40-year-olds. You know, we know, the trouble is we know a dozen 40-year-olds, but we don't know the right 50-year-olds. Chris Matthews, anchor of Hardball on MSNBC. This is a small repayment that you're giving me to have me on your show after the thousands of times I've had you on my show. I am thrilled to have a show to have you on. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Chris Matthews, also author of Bobby Kennedy, A Raging Spirit. Really, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, John. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? with Allison Michaels, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.